Well, hey there, skips and skipperettes from all across the internet adventure lands. Welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. Tonight's episode is with Skipper Timothy Bernardi, who joins us all the way over from Orlando at Walt Disney World. He chats a little bit about his time over there on the other coast. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us for the last episode. I know it was a little bit unconventional, but we had a great time with it. And we really appreciate that you guys uh, enjoyed it and gave us such great feedback. You know, I haven't said this for a while, but if you get a chance, go on over to iTunes and give us a uh, little positive comment there. We always appreciate it. And now, everybody, let's roll out with Tales from the Jungle Cruise, Episode 17, Season 2, with Skipper Timothy Bernardi. Tales from the Jungle Cruise. I just kind of roll it out a little soft and easy. I, I'm assuming that you've heard the podcast by this point. Yeah, I've heard a podcast before. Okay, good. I'm. They're very. Uh, they're big technology. They're going to be the radio of the internet or the television <laughs> or whatever it is. So, uh, no, cool. I'm glad we actually were able to um, make this happen. We've kind of been bouncing back and forth. My very first contact with you uh, goes all the way back to. Um, uh, February of 2012, when you were letting me know about a contest on the themeparkinsider.com website. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was a bracketed um, kind of a Sweet 16 basketball tournament inspired contest to determine who the best rides uh, at the park was, uh, who had the best roller coaster and who had the best themed attraction. And as I recall... Uh, the Jungle Cruise was up against... Remind me who else... What, what category it was in. The Jungle Cruise was up against Kilimanjaro Safari, the other um, Disney jungle-based attraction here in Orlando. And um, essentially every year, Bob uh, Niles over at Theme Park Insider um, does a contest where people get to come, call, get to arrive at the website, vote, and choose between competing attractions. And it's not just Disney attractions. Of course, it's all theme park attractions. And, um, of course, once you vote for your particular attraction, then you can jump down onto the thread and trash talk all you want. And uh, I've I've always been um, a a big lobbyist, for lack of a better phrase, um, advocate for the Jungle Cruise on the website. And uh, so when it was Jungle Cruise versus Kilimanjaro, that's when I said, you know, I could eat Kyle Crocker involved in this. And See if he can't throw some votes our way, and we ended up being victorious. Yep. Now the uh, well, we we had our first Walt Disney World skippers on um, the episode that we uh, we just put up a couple weeks ago. So by the time this goes up, it'll be maybe a month, month and a half ago. Um, but we had uh, what was your what was your time frame? When were you at uh, when were you at the Jungle Cruise in Orlando? I am uh, decidedly old school, Kyle. Um, I started at the Jungle Cruise. Um, in the fall of 1982, 
Um, I was a student with the Magic Kingdom College Program. Now, some of your listeners may be familiar with the Walt Disney World College Program as it exists today, but this was the Magic Kingdom College Program. Uh, living in double-wide trailers, eight guys to a trailer, um, in the fall of 1982, same fall that Epcot opened up. And I was blessed with the opportunity to be a Jungle Cruise skipper. And uh, this summer will mark, wow, it's been 30 years since 1982, obviously, but uh, I went back to the University of Kentucky and elected to relocate back down to Florida, where in the summer of 1983, I worked that entire season as a Jungle Cruise skipper. Mm-hmm. And then after you were done with it, you went and actually did college and, and you know, those little things. By the way, uh, Eight Man in the Trailer is, is, by the way, the worst sitcom that CBS has ever had. <laughs> Um, yeah, and especially when you consider that you're talking about four guys, college guys, uh, sharing a bathroom, one bathroom, and then eight guys sharing one kitchen. Uh, it, it, they were less trailers and more Petri dishes. And stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but there's it, a good combination of call sick and call hungover uh, yeah, for the uh, the scheduling <laughs> programs at those times. So, yeah, now, uh, like I said, you're actually our, only our third um, Orlando skipper on the podcast. Um, which is funny because we've been running, but I, I think you may be tied for the earliest hire date. I've got one other skipper from 82, so uh, 82 or 83. So we're, we're going to get some old school knowledge from you on this. Um, now just to give a quick, quick rundown, um, after that, uh, you know, you continued with a little bit of, of working with the company after that as well. Yes. In 1986, actually, there was a couple of different times. Um, when you live in Orlando and, you, and you're working in the service industry, uh, chances are you're going to end up showing up at um, Disney Human Resources for casting. Um, in 1986, I worked as a guest relations host and then uh, left them in 1987, just worked there for a year. But since that time, I've moved into commercial construction um, in project management, and I've participated in construction on projects out at Walt Disney World. Um, in 2001, uh, under a contract, uh, I also had the opportunity to work at Walt Disney Imagineering for a short period of time. Well, that's then that's almost we have a little bit in common. I actually got my start with the company as a vendor to um, Imagineering back in '99, and ended up uh, helping them with a project with um, when they were redoing um, Autopia. Sure. Uh, so I kind of got started on the, more on the Imagineering side and. Then uh, when I decided to get out of that career, I decided just to come and work at the park for a while. So, um, was it? I mean, did you get the bug early? Was the college program for you just it was a convenient situation, or was it always your dream to work at the resorts? When I was uh, when I was a, a child, um, we're talking 1973, 1974. Um, my parents. I was growing up in Chicago, and my parents took us down to Orlando um, for a visit to Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Jungle Cruise especially was absolutely um, one that stood out for me. So I, I gleaned onto that very, very early. In fact, when I went in, um, it was in 1982, when I went for the interview to get into the Magic Kingdom College program, and they asked me what job I wanted to do, I said flat out Jungle Cruise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I had that affinity for the theme parks. I had visited Disneyland in 1968 and again in the summer of 1980. Um, but uh, that the Jungle Cruise was always just it, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, well, and that's you know we um, we always have discussions about how uh, in Anaheim the Jungle Cruise is kind of the linchpin of of the parks, 
where it was one of the biggest scale attractions at a time when uh, the category of thrill ride didn't really exist, um, up to the point where you had the the uh, insertion of the Matterhorn, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the Haunted Mansion. But you know the the Jungle Cruise for you know 50 plus years now has kind of anchored the park. I mean there really isn't another attraction. Uh, within the Disney sphere of things in Anaheim that's held quite that position. Do, do you feel it's the same way in Orlando? Do you feel that the Jungle Cruise has a special place there, or was it just another attraction when, when they opened up? No, I think the Jungle Cruise, the fact that the Jungle Cruise was adding it to the Magic Kingdom was a foregone conclusion. They always knew that it was there was going to be a Florida edition of the Jungle Cruise. Um, what was it, 15, 16 years between the opening of the original Jungle Cruise to Florida. And yet, like I said, when they decided they were going to build the Florida property, they knew they were going to put a Jungle Cruise in there. And and, and certainly, you know, the, the attraction itself was iconic enough by that point that, um, that there was no doubt that it was going to become a part of um, the Magic Kingdom. And I also simultaneously believe that it continues to grow into that and that uh, the Jungle Cruise is... You know, what's really interesting, Kyle, is is when they closed Mr. Toad's Wild Ride in Fantasyland here in Magic Kingdom, mm-hmm. um, there was all kinds of consternation on the web, as there is for whatever that's worth, okay? But you don't necessarily hear that about the Jungle Cruise, but it's obviously there. Yeah. It's obviously there that, that this is a trademark signature attraction in that way. Well, I think that, you know, it happened here when they uh, – it was – more pre-internet, we didn't have the the big buzz. But when Country Bears closed in Anaheim and they replaced it with the uh, Adventures of Winnie the Pooh ride, you know I think we had a definite um, amount of blowback. But there's a point where you go, if that fan base was there at, at early enough to keep the ride attendance up, they wouldn't be looking at at pulling those things out and replacing them. Um, I, and I do think Disney's smart in the fact that they always keep one iteration of the rides open at one of the parks. So you guys have Country Bear, we have Mr. Toad. Uh, I'm sure that those uh, those won't change anytime soon. Uh, although, yeah, maybe you know it's time to throw a little new music behind the Country Bear Jamboree. Um, I mean, with Country Western, you know, having the popularity popularity it kind of has resurged with. It'd be interesting if they uh, played with some more uh, modern performers in that. Although, can't fault you know John Denver and Dolly Parton. <laughs> Uh, did you see the April Fool's prank for the Jungle Cruise in Orlando? The uh, uh, the report that came out that they were going to switch it to an Avatar-based water ride. No, I didn't hear that one. I, it, I didn't hear that. It, one. it was a it, it was a fantastically done April Fool's prank. Um, it was one of those. Uh, it was slid in, uh, you know, late night on the thirtieth, uh, so it looked a little bit more real. There wasn't a lot of telling points in there that it was going to be an April Fool's gig other than the release date. Uh, but they had talked about, you know, the uh, real estate that the Jungle Cruise takes up in Orlando and what they can do with it. So, yeah, it was it was actually a very well done uh, uh, April Fool's kind of a gig. Well, there's a lot of rumors that are floating around about, you know, new properties between the Star Wars properties and the Marvel properties. And now with Oz. Uh, taking off to the level it has, you know, we've we've heard some bouncing around that there may be some Oz-themed uh, refurbs and refits in uh, Disneyland. Uh, we've heard that, you know, there may be some Star Wars redos over in Tomorrowland. It's really interesting with the amount of intellectual property that they have to play with. Certainly it is. It is. Um, I, I think that um, 
there are obviously opportunities there. Star Wars with the presence at Disney Hollywood Studios, which has been such an enormous success, and and will be out at the Star Wars weekends this summer because obviously there are a lot of interesting things that they can do with that. And um, those those franchises that exist out there are substantial. Whether or not they all translate into theme park attractions, and whether or not they all translate to the point where you can make that kind of investment, fifty, eighty million dollars, um, to build something. Um, and then calculate your return coming back. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think every action movie, to one degree or another, could probably be translated into a theme park attraction. But whether or not you pull the trigger on it, right? You know, who knows? Who knows? Well, well, I think that all those all those things have a a, a nice longevity to them already. Uh, all the properties that they're looking at are things that already have some legs to it, which kind of goes into that the the side of it where it's you know if you have a movie you make a theme park attraction and if you have a theme park attraction you eventually end up making a movie out of it um you know obviously they they tapped heavily from walt disney world for the haunted mansion movie and there's been renewed commentary over the last six months or so about the uh, the jungle cruise movie with um the tom hanks and uh, tim allen one uh supposedly actually having a script now uh plus they've got the the big thunder um, television show coming up. What, what's what's your thought about? Do you think Jungle Cruise translates well for for motion picture? I well, I certainly hope that. Um, and I'm going to butcher his name, Guillermo del Toro. The yeah. Guy who's doing Haunted the Hunt. I certainly hope that the Jungle Cruise has more of his take on it than the Eddie Murphy take on it. Um, although Tim Allen's Santa Claus, I mean, it may be just kind of a madcap family comedy. But it's interesting that you brought up the fact that you've heard that they've gotten a script now. Um, as the Jungle Cruise movie was announced and then very quickly disappeared, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting for me also about that is, and, and again, I may not be as up as this as you are, Kyle, but uh, there's the John Favreau Magic Kingdom film yeah. Yeah. that was announced and then apparently it became involved with Pixar. This is just from the top of my head. Um, and now where is it? Um, we, we, we have the movie coming out with Tom Hanks, with regards to Mr. Disney, Saving Mr. Banks, which comes out in December, mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing because it's a Disney film that's about Mr. Disney, uh, and, and and that's coming out. But I just uh, you hear Jungle Cruise, you hear Haunted Mansion, you hear Magic Kingdom as these films coming out, and then they seem to kind of dissipate or disappear. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is, and part of the new marketing of movies anymore is that you you toss out these business deals, you toss out these scripts, you take them to Comic-Con, you take them to D23, whatever it is, and you okay. see what the public traction is. And where it doesn't have any, they just, they abandon it. You know, they walk away from it or they they lose it in development hell because there's no way that without public support with a, uh, a property as big as a Disney property that unless you've got enough of a buzz going around about it, you're not going to have another Pirates of the Caribbean. You're not right. going to have, I, you know, I mean, you're going to have another Eddie Murphy haunted mansion. Is what you're going to have. Well, and I, and I can see that being that, but if that's the way that they're making their decisions, it seems terribly clumsy. Well, it is, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily decisions. I think they make the decision, then they go in, they take it out and promote it, and then there's no interest. And the people behind it who are financing it look at it and go, well, we can't get anyone to talk about this other than negatively. Maybe it's time to to shelve it until we have a better take on it. I think that's a possibility. I do think that. Um, well, there's a couple things. First of all, if you're going to go ahead and, and, and you know, throw out a trial balloon, that's fine. But if you're attaching Tom Hanks' name to it, Oscar winner Tom Hanks to it, I would assume that you have something a little bit more solid, like, for example, a script. Yeah. Um, 
or, or some semblance of one. Uh, you know, John Favreau, obviously with his success with the Iron Man films, you'd assume that Magic Kingdom would have moved further along in development. Um, I'm surprised. Well, that it, I, and it's based off a it's based off a best-selling book as well. Which is the you're talking about the uh, the Kingdom uh, Keepers? Yeah, the Kingdom Keepers yeah. on the on the young adult side is a hugely popular series. And if and if that's the case, that's the case. I but I will tell you this, Kyle, that um, uh, I have. I have friends who are huge Kingdom Keepers fans. They read the books backward and forward. I haven't done that yet. But uh, when I heard the Favreau announcement, I immediately said, this just sounds like Kingdom Keepers. Mm-hmm. And if it is Kingdom Keepers, how about we just call it Kingdom Keepers? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and run with it. I mean, as you say, it's a hugely successful book. The uh, author was down here at uh, the Disney Shopping Village signing copies, and it's my understanding the uh, – Line went around the block. Yeah. I actually, I actually thought that he was tied into it based on the, that property. So, uh, I, I haven't heard anything about it being yeah. connected as far yeah. as being an adaptation. Yeah, and I, I think it would be interesting if the, you know, if the rights can be worked out. If um, any of these rumors about, you know, Oz being uh, incorporated in the theme parks, uh, be interesting to see where that falls as well. Because, um, have you seen the movie? My my take on it was it was gorgeous. Sam Raimi did an amazing job. It had a passable script and it had a really awkward cast. I uh, think so too. I, I thought I Franco was terrible. I did too. Um, I mean, God bless the guy. You're out there working. Um, but uh, at the same time, I felt I, I I have a similar opinion in that regard. Yeah. Um, and Zach Bramp, I don't know that he was a good fit, but but uh, like you said, it was a gorgeous film. Yeah. I, I think it created, it created environments, and, and certainly in theme parks, that's what you're trying to do. I think it it actually felt like a Johnny Depp movie without Johnny Depp, um, yeah. and a Tim Burton movie without Tim Burton, and I think it 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 out Alice Alice in Wonderland and made a, a better film uh, visually than they were were playing with there. So I, I would be more I would be more inclined to say it was a Tim Burton film without Helena Bonham Carter, but. Well. Uh, which she wasn't in that. I thought she's in every movie she's required. It had Danny Elfman music, so that at least makes it kind of a Tim Burtonish feel to it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so now, when you um, when you went in through the college program, uh, let's get back to the relative subjects that we talk about on the podcast. Uh, when you went through the college program, was that your was it your only choice? Was it your main thing you wanted to do? Was Jungle? How did you? Uh, at, at the time, was it a little bit more open as far as where you could work? I wanted to work at the Jungle Cruise, Kyle. There was no question about it. I wanted yeah. to. I mean, I'm I, you're a natural. I'm a natural ham to a certain degree, and I, and I certainly, when I was uh, visiting there as a guest, I enjoyed the attraction, and I knew if I was going to be working in attractions, that's the only attraction I wanted to work in, was to be able to be um, able to stand up and perform like that. Now, um, was it when you went in, in through the casting process? Was it a fight? Was it uh, difficult at all, or were they very open about where your enthusiasms lied? No, it wasn't difficult at all at the time. Disney was actually this. You're, you're realizing this was this interview took place in March, six months before Epcot Center opened, mm-hmm. and as a result, Disney was in a hiring state where they were trying to fulfill um, all these positions at Epcot Center. And so the opportunities for jobs, that atmosphere created a great deal of flexibility. And I think also the fact that college program students, um, that the Jungle Cruise Skipper position was a college program position allocated. The fact that I stated it upright in the interview that I wanted to be a Jungle Cruise Skipper, um, that put me right into place. I, I don't think that there was any problem. I'm sure the lady made the decision before I left the room. 
Sure. So now uh, you were probably 18 or 19 at that point? 19. 19 going into it. What was um, – because I think obviously 30 years ago, it's it's a much different state for the 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 feel and the atmosphere. What was the kind of um, memories that you have about those first days, uh, iconically, of coming into the hiring process and training? What what stands out for you as uh, things that were memorable from that time? Well, it's the guys. It's always going to be the guys. Um, we uh, at the time. Um, the jungle crew skipper position was exclusively a male position mm-hmm. for cast members. There were no female cast members down there. And, and I tell you right now that uh, having, having, um, I, I visit the parks at least a half, uh, a dozen and a half times a year. And having been on boats with female skippers, I can tell you right now, female skippers just knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. I really think it was a great addition. Um, but at the time when you were down there and you were 19 years old, it was like essentially being in a fraternity. Um, we were, it was all guys. And we all traded off each other in terms of ad libs. And uh, we were wearing the corduroy shirts, the khakis, and the straw hats at the time. And there was a real camaraderie. Uh, when I came, I, I, I worked um, the fall of 1982, went back to the University of Kentucky for a spring semester in 1983, and said, enough, I'm moving to Orlando. Working the summer season of 1983 with the same group of guys for three months, it was it was fantastic. It was a fantastic experience. Yeah, and are you still in touch with some of those guys? Oh, sure, a couple of them, um, a couple of them. Uh, we're talking 30 years ago now, uh, but at the same time, with social media being making everybody as accessible as they have, yeah, I've definitely yeah. got some friends. Yeah, we've we've got a um, a group of uh, Anaheim skippers that range from about 83 to 91. And I I, want to say that there's the group probably has a couple hundred people involved in it from different. uh, Not all of them are were skippers from that era, but it's it's a pretty active Facebook group. So it would be interesting. It would be interesting to know who is right now the oldest um, existing skipper because he should be revered. Well, you know, I I have a gentleman that I've been working on getting a a taping with who worked from 64 to 67. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm working on getting some interviews from that time period. It's actually been a little challenging to find um, people from those those higher dates um, who are either tech savvy enough that we can do remote interviews or who are local and I can actually pin down. So we're still working on getting some some viewpoints from the boats from those younger days. So it really, now, it really is that 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 that'd be really interesting. That would really yeah. be interesting. Well, it kind of supports the concept of the podcast, which you know, all the joking and the um, uh, the the smart assery and you know sometimes the the little bit of blue humor that skips in with the jungle cruise uh, concepts um you know the concept of the podcast way back when was to create an oral history of what it is fundamentally like to be a jungle cruise skipper and go go back and you know take a look at uh the 50s and 60s and and uh, get some you know eyes on accounts of what it was like early on uh if you get guys like that, I mean, I, I just think it's very affirming. Yeah. It's very affirming to um, the iconography of the Jungle Cruise and, right. and how it is. It, it not only just is it signature Disney, it, it being signature Americana in a very big way. And uh, and 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 it's 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 a worthy notion to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at uh, at what it is as far yeah. as its place. Well, I, I had a chat with a film historian who. Um, uh, this is something that unfortunately couldn't be put on the podcast, but I was having a chat with him about, you know, what had come before in the, 
you know, the Humphrey Bogart movie and, um, you know, Amazon Queen and all of the, the kind of ways that people perceived that era and the kind of a gap that you had where some of the jungle adventure movies and things became a little light and a little funny. And uh, then the Indiana Jones movie hit and the whole thing changed again. It all, you know, because that really was the revitalization. But this guy's theory was that the the modern look at that has a lot of a lot of things rooted in the way that the Jungle Cruise uh, has impacted so many people that, you know, oh, it, sure um, did. it sure did. I was fortunate enough that that I had when I was working at the Jungle Cruise, the first Indiana Jones had already dropped and um, 1984 Temple of Doom was coming. And Indiana Jones was was definitely uh, what we all stylized ourselves off of. Yeah. Um, down there at that time. Now that timeline, I want to say eighty, yeah, eighty three, eighty four. Um, this is for people who are are fans of of comedy. Uh, there was a TV show that came out called Tales from the Gold Monkey, uh, and it was on ABC. It lasted, I think, it lasted part of a season, eight or nine episodes, maybe twelve before it was canceled. Uh, but the concept was basically. I hate to say it, but it was Tailspin, the the Disney cartoon. Sure. It was sure. a guy. It was a guy with a plane. I think actually Tailspin was so lifted off of this show that uh, it's a little peculiar when you look at how close the characterizations were. Um, but Tales of the Gold Monkey, I, I, some of the episodes have actually made it now onto YouTube, and there were so many Jungle Cruise style jokes. And it really took the trope, the you know some of the things that were you know the wisecracking skipper and the bar owner and you know all these you know really strong characterizations, and it really gelled it. And that was one of my earliest memories. I actually didn't grow up in Orlando, or sorry, in, in Anaheim or Orlando, just you know to be clear. Um, I actually grew up in in uh, Washington State in Seattle and Spokane, and. I I only went to Disneyland once when I was eight, and then the next time that I came was when I was 20 or 21 years old on my honeymoon. So, I mean, for me, it wasn't a constant part of my, my existence, but of the things I remember when I came down when I was eight years old, the Jungle Cruise was first and foremost the thing that I remember. Sure. So I think it sticks. I, a lot of people say that that's one of their first memories of Disney, um, which I guess statistically it would be for some people. Um but you know it is such a such an iconic thing, and the the park has gone through stages of promoting it and not promoting it. So that's a possibility. I mean, let, let's face it: you're growing up, you're a boy, and you're talking about adventure. Gunshots and hippos, man. Gunshots and hippos. Absolutely. Uh, in 1983, we were still shooting um, the Smith and Wessons with the blanks in them. And we were cleaning the guns at the end of the night. Yeah, you know, I was in, do you know when? Do you know when Orlando went to the electronic guns? No idea. Um, yeah. No idea. We had we had it was it was really amazing because, and I smile thinking about it now. We had a wooden box with these Ace Hardware hinges on it, and you'd flip it open and you'd throw the uh, blanks into the gun and and and, and you'd shoot the hippo and it would go bang bang and yep. it would be loud and and, and, it, and the smoke would come off the gun and, and it was a great effect. And uh, seriously, I think if you if Disney wanted to, uh, I've heard, I've heard talk about. Uh, you know, revamping the Jungle Cruise a little bit, but if Disney wanted to do it, I would put the guns back on the boat without without hesitation. Yeah. Without hesitation. Um, it, it, I think that it's a neat effect. Yeah. And if you're, and the other point from it is, is if you're going to use the electric guns, don't use the electric guns because either it's real or it's cheesy, and cheesy is no good. Yeah. You know, I um, 
I was at the Jungle Cruise during the period in Anaheim when uh, the guns were no longer there uh, during that that time period between uh, when they just mysteriously disappeared to when they literally showed up with no fanfare again and we started retraining on them. Um, and lately, I mean, things have definitely changed. They, I think, because of the the shock of how loud those blanks were, uh, especially you know the blanks the um, they had the two different ammunition types. One was for the signals for do it, uh, for signifying if your boat was down or things of that nature. Um, we actually had two different uh, shells, and one was specifically meant to be louder for those situations. But from what I understand, lately they're using a new type of ammunition that just has a much smaller charge in it that doesn't have quite as big of a kick, so it's not as big of an issue with the guests on the boat and the the explosion of it and the, the you know the the audio issues. I'm not certain. Um, if my, my again, my attitude, Kyle, is is that if you know, bring the gun back, or if you're not going to bring the gun back, do something to eliminate it altogether. And, yeah. And, and you know, that's my way of thinking towards it. Um, uh, the guns were essentially like fireworks, and and they were something that people remember, and they were certainly something that was promoted on the original edition of the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. So. Yep. But that's my opinion on that. So yeah, and, and I'm thrilled that they're back. I actually think that they, they're a great point in that ride. And uh, when I'm at Anaheim and I'm walking outside the park and I hear the two shots in the hippo pool, you know, it uh, it definitely brings it all back to me. I and mean, it's one of those visual things that whenever I hear that, and it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the political side of it, but just as a throwaway comment, I think it's, it's going to be interesting where um, – if things are going to become politically correct to a level because of the, the gun tragedies that we've had in the U S whether or not at some point down the road, you know, they just feel like that's a a direction that Disney can't do kind of like airbrushing out the cigarettes from Walt's hands, you know, in all the promotional pictures. Or, I mean, I I think Disney is a company that because of its unique standing in the world has to bend to those politically correct issues a lot faster than the rest of the culture. I think to a certain degree they do, and I certainly do because uh, the context of the attraction is that it's a family attraction, and and I get that, okay. But again, like I said, do away with them, either do away with them completely or um, pony up, basically. Yeah. Keep it, keep it, keep it going well in Orlando. So, um, so what was the uh, what were what was the tone of that summer? Because like you were saying, that that was right in the time where Epcot was opening. It sure uh, was. Um, we, when I went to, and I can't tell you how blessed I feel, when I arrived in Central Florida originally, uh, it was September 1982, uh, first week of September, and we came in, and as the college program, we were going to be the college program that opened Epcot. So I was at Epcot on opening day. I watched Card Walker give the speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was even more exciting about that, Kyle, was uh, cast member preview nights, wherein a group of us... Um, were given passes, and we got to go into the park at Epcot before it opened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working the Jungle Cruise the day of opening uh, in the evening, and uh, it was dead in the Magic Kingdom. It was dead. Uh, we had gone over to um, see the opening with uh, the grand opening with Card Walker, and then after that I had to hightail it back to get to work at that time, working for Maid Street Adventureland Operations. And uh, the park was empty. I mean, the only thing on Main Street was Rod Sterling and Tumbleweeds. So. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's, you know, at the time there wasn't that mechanism of the giant tourist um, 
machine that the Orlando resort has become. So when you're looking at just opening up a, the second property, you know, it's, uh, I mean, some of the hotel properties were there, but it was by no means the scale that it is today. No. So, and I mean, when, when, when I had worked it and I worked that fall, went back to Kentucky, then came back down for the summer by that summer, uh, the park was crazy. Um, yeah. by 10 o'clock in the morning, we were full queue. Um, and, and, and you'd be running people through, uh, already in 1983, uh, our tourists, our, our visitors from Brazil had started to really populate the parks. And there was still those um, bumps in the road that came with the Epcot attractions. So people were bouncing back and forth uh, between the Epcot Park and the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. Well, and it's... Um... I mean, like it's like anything where you have the growth. I was at California Adventure during the openings, um, and I think that there was a, you know, a definite um, ramping up. I mean, it took a while for people to plan their their holidays and to plan the vacations and get out there for it, um, because at the time it wasn't you know this mega res- resort like you had in Orlando. Disneyland was was a little smaller of a feel to it, and it wasn't where you went for multi-day holidays. You came here, and then you went and did Universal for one day and Knott's for one day, and you went and you did you know a Hollywood tour, but you didn't come and spend three or four or five days at Disneyland. Now with California Adventure, that's a much more realistic, realistic possibility. So you've got these park days where you've got 70,000, 75,000 people at Disneyland and 40 or 50 at California Adventure. Uh, you know, and in the past we have had, you know, attendance days where maybe we had 20,000 people at Disneyland. I mean, you know, where you, you'd have the off season where the park would be open from 10 to six and you'd have a single eight hour staffing crew in that middle range. And then now, you know, it's almost impossible to find a day when you're not open past, you know, eight o'clock and opening at nine or 10. Uh, but even on those days, you know, they, they want to have the park open eight to midnight as often as possible because it maximizes their revenues. So, um, so what, what, uh, in that first summer for you, you know, what are some of the special memories? What are some of the things that you got to do or some adventures you had with the other skips where was, I'm, I'm assuming the training process was, you know, four, three or four days learning the script, um, you know, learning the basics of, of being there on the college program. Um, but you know, what, what else stands out for you for that first summer as far as, you know, memories on the jungle? Well, we, when I first got hired there, Traditions was still a two-day process of orientation, and then that was followed by three days of training on the Jungle Cruise. Um, and and uh, what I really enjoy about it was um, the guys who I worked with and, and the guys who uh, I trained with, and, and I remember them all by name. We uh, The three-day training uh, period was fantastic. Uh, I was working with Bob Ferrier, um, Marvin, yeah, Starman Marvin, and myself, and we're all being trained on the Jungle Cruise. Uh, what I remember most about it is drawing the ad-libs from the other guys and mm-hmm. figuring out when it is you could push the envelope. Um, Bob Ferrier, Dr. Bob is how he went as far as his handle, and this was in 1983, would float away from the boat and say, all right, folks, we're going to have a great time together. Anybody bring a Frisbee? And, you know, just that little offhanded reference just caused me to chuckle. Um, and then riding with some of the veteran guys, is where I learned to figure out my rhythms and figure out exactly how I was going to do my performance, uh, and 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 then at that same time becoming appreciative of the history of the attraction. 
uh, and realizing that you didn't have to tell rapid-fire joke after joke after joke, and if you managed to go through the Jungle Cruise and get eight solid laughs, that people were going to get off the boat and be very happy. Um, so I remember getting those instincts very early on. Now, the um, the ride now, as it sits in Orlando, is about a 10, 10 to 12-minute run. Um, yeah, and was was the I guess I don't know the Orlando history as much. The temple was a newer addition, wasn't it? The the the. Um, I don't think there's any new additions. I think that track was, was, that track exists as it was built. Um, so, on so, opening day. so the temple that the you know the the covered area that you go through was there when you were. Absolutely. Okay, and did you find that it was? a joke sucker that it was almost impossible to really do anything effective in there because i've heard that well, from a lot of orlando the difficulty orlando. with the temple is when you go through it is the acoustics i mean there's there there is first of all there's a soundtrack inside and secondly um water bounces sound and so if you're going to try and tell jokes in the temple you know i, I don't think that's uh, that's not something that i would do that's not how i'd approach it um i certainly also believe to a lot of extent that the attraction itself is the entertainment um so, and I think the temple is the entertainment. What I used to do when I would approach the temple is I would stop the boat right in front of the tunnel. And I would look um, at the crew and I would say, folks, I'm not sure what's on this temple, what's inside here. Um, no, I said, well, what I would say? I would say, folks, I'm not sure what's on the other side of this. But there's one thing I do know. that inside this tunnel is filled with long, black, poisonous snakes. Thousands of long, black, poisonous snakes. Are you ready, ladies? And then I would say, no guts, no glory, we're going through. And I'd push the, and I'd punch the throttle. Um, you would play off of that fear. Yes, it's Disney. Yes, it's the Jungle Cruise. But you're going into a tunnel in a tropical environment, and someone's just told you there's snakes in there. I don't think you need to tell a joke once you're going through the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So the... Um, uh, I think where my brain is. The... Attraction. Have you, you have you ridden the Anaheim Jungle Cruise as well? Have you been out to Disneyland? Yes, I have. Um, one of the the comments that I uh, constantly hear about the Orlando attraction is that it's a little more cartoony. That you know the way the faces are sculpted on the characters, the way that the uh, you know the biggest one is the um, native uprising with the rhino, with the rhino and the guys climbing the pole. You know, you definitely get that commentary that it's a more um, sketched out cartoon look at the the concept. Do you feel that that's a, a fair assessment? I do think so to a certain degree. Um, if you think about it, um, there are comedic aspects to the different animations. There's the gorillas who have taken over the camp. There is the guys going up the uh, pole. There is the elephant underneath the waterfall. There's certainly whimsical aspects of the uh, animation. When I would, for example, go by the gorillas as a Jungle Cruise skipper, I really didn't tell any jokes. I really didn't say anything because I think the comedy was the actual animatronic figures on the bank. Well, I think that that's a, it's a visual style. It's you know, it's very much um, the comedy is already there in the elements of the show scenes because of the way that it's put together. Whereas Anaheim takes a drier approach and a more natural looking approach to the style of the attraction and then puts more of the emphasis on the skippers to bring that humor. Whereas, and I think partially it's because, you know, it is a longer attraction in, in Orlando. Um, but it also has a different feel to it as far as just the tone of the attraction. 
uh, you know, it's, it's, you have a lot more sky. It's a lot more open. Whereas in Anaheim, it's a much more closed in, you know, the bamboo crosses over the top. You don't get as much natural light. Uh, it's definitely spookier at, at, at nighttime and a darker attraction at night because there's no lights. Um, right. you know, so I, I just always have felt that there's that base level where, you know, you already have some humor. So do you feel like it's, it's harder to, take the the scripted material and work with it in a way that that integrates with that kind of a funnier take and funnier visual i'm not sure it's that but but I, and i really never even thought about it this way before but it it um for me uh what you're seeing kind of resonates uh first of all the original jungle cruise was built um when mr disney was still alive okay and the it was also built closer to the release of the African Lion film, which was a quote-unquote true adventure film, right? Um, and, and so that might have something to do with it. When they went back to uh, create the Jungle Cruise in Orlando, Mr. Disney had already passed, um, and they were looking at the space they had and designing an attraction based upon that space. Um, whether the distance from the African Lion made it more of a comedy as opposed to something that was a true life adventure. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a worthy point of conversation. Well, and I also think that the culture had changed by that point, you know, that you had an additional 10 years of television where you were starting to get into um, more experimentation, the cultural mores as far as comedy were starting to move. And, and you know, there was definitely a, a shift in the Disney side of things with their live film programming to go to a more comedic and more cartooned live action kind of a feel for you know, their live action films, particularly the, the things during the 70s, um, you know, the computer who, who wore tennis shoes. There you go. And the, I was about to say the exact same thing. And, you know, the cat, up, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the cat, from outer, man, right? cat from outer space. Um, we, we really don't want to bring up Condor Man because the quicker that that disappears, the happier everyone is. But I think that the Disney as a company was going to those family comedies and seeing that that more cartooned approach to it was was really more of the company direction. I think it showed in the the uh, the style of the attraction. I think it did too, but to a certain degree, I think the comedy that exists in the attraction is broad. I think that the comedy that exists in the attraction is necessarily topical by any means. Oh, no, and I don't think it's topical, but I think it's a style. The same way that you have a difference, you know, between impressionist painters and romantic painters, you know, it's it's a different brushstroke and a different way of looking at the subject material. And you know, as skippers, you kind of have to step into, you know, um, you, you tell a different kind of joke up against a, a brick wall than you do if you're on a sitcom set. Right, right. You know, and I think that that's that's the um, the basis is some of the jokes are very much you know, bi-coastal and work at either attraction. But I think that there are definite jokes that work more specifically in those areas because of the tone of the attraction. That's a possibility, yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously there's specific jokes based upon the animations that's sitting on the banks. But, yeah. um, but, uh, the, but, but I think it's interesting. I mean, if that was the intent, the idea of to make things in a comical con in a context that was the same as the comedian or the other venues that Disney was doing, which would be a real interesting pioneering almost symbiotic relationship between movie studio and theme park. I mean, we're talking the late 1960s when this thing was designed. Um, 
and while that may be there and that might have been the intent originally, that's fine, but I still think it translates. I, like I said, I don't think it's topical, and I don't think uh, the humor is somehow out of context today. No, 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 and I, th- I, think it's, I think it's held up. I think it was well-designed. I think there are other attractions that don't you know, stand the test of time as well. Uh, you know, one of the questions that I've, I've enjoyed asking at times on the, the podcast, I'll throw it to you, is do you think the Jungle Cruise survives at the 100th anniversary? Do you think it's still in the park in the way that it is? Or does it have to change as the time goes on, uh, or does it just, you know, not fit at a hundred years with, uh, when the anniversary happens in in 2055? What's what's well, your talk 2055? I, I think that everything in Orlando, theme park wise, and, and working in commercial construction as I do, and seeing where the bids are and the drawings that are out there, um, everything is actually gravitating gravitating much more short term to 2021, which is the 50th anniversary of the parks. Um, but does it survive 100 years? I think it has to. I don't think it survives in the same form. Ultimately, I don't think you understand.